Our scripture reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 22 and 28 through 34. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And then he said, I'll do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So the one who lays up treasure for himself is not rich towards God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. Oh, you of little faith, and do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old and with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Susan. Uh, good morning. There we go. My name is Drew Bennett, uh, one of the pastors here this morning. We're short staff, so I'm doing a few different things this morning. Uh, we come to uh, a topic in our series on the seven deadly sins of greed. Now, you can't make this stuff up, okay? Let me explain what's happening. We decided to upgrade to these really fancy thermostats that you can like, adjust from your iPhones when you're at home laying in bed, which are currently not working. Isn't that great? You get it? We're talking about greed, about a man who built bigger barns. Maybe it's lost on you, but not on me, because it is hot as Hades up here on the stage. It says it's 73 degrees out there where you are, but it's 81 degrees up here where I am. So uh, if you're cold, move towards the front of the room, but we're going to keep the doors open. Uh, and try to and try to make it work this morning. So the, ha- the the front part is sweating to death. The back is freezing cold. I think, but we will we will get that straightened out. We come this morning to the topic of greed, and uh, and I, I have to admit I'm I'm a little um, I'm a little flummoxed. Isn't that a great word? In dealing with this subject, largely because of my own story and experience, and God must uh, think I have something to learn here because I. I preached for Jeff last week, and he was here, and we flopped this week, so I preached the sermon to his, his people last week, to you this week, that I'm going to CCPC in Lakeland, our sister church there, to preach the same sermon again next week, so I must have some things to learn, because God has me here for three weeks, and in fact, I do. If you knew my story, you would know that this is 
a huge part of my struggle uh, in my own personal life. And I think we have to admit that, that for, as a culture, and particularly um, many of us, uh, have a blind spot when it comes to this particular sin. 33884, where, where most of us live, is the second most affluent zip code in, in all of Polk County. 33813, where I'll be next Sunday, is the, 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 the most affluent. Uh, and so despite all the Bible's warnings, we, in many ways, as a culture, have cozied up with greed. And by we, I mean conservative American evangelicalism. And if you want just one example, consider this. Next week, Jonathan's going to preach on lust and on sexual sin. Uh, but if you were to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul talks about church discipline, and he talks about how the church should really rally around um, people in their darker moments where they're, where they're sitting in their lives and, and confront them and encourage them towards faithfulness and, and, and so forth. When he begins to write about that, here's what he says. He says, don't associate with anyone who is guilty of sexual immorality or greed. So he puts those two things side by side there in that context. But what's fascinating to me is consider with me for just a minute the amount of time and energy and ink the church, American evangelicalism in particular, has given to matters of sexual immorality. We are hypersensitive to sexual sin while we many times wink at greed. It's just true. And yet, the scripture is strong in its warning against greed. Historically, if you're into these kinds of things, the sin of greed was always listed number two in the list of the seven, second only to pride for its destructiveness and uh, how widespread it was in people's lives. Jesus spoke more about this issue than any other in the Gospels. And yet, as I've said, it seems to be that this is a particular pet sin of our culture. These facts, these facts alone make it curious, I guess the word would be, that it gets such little attention among Christians. Pastors don't like to talk about this because people don't like for pastors to talk about it. And, and we get all kinds of negative feedback and you just want money and all that kind of stuff. And I can tell you that's not the case. I'm not after your money, I'm after your heart. Because Jesus is too. Uh, and, and yet this is here and we've got to talk about it. So I, I, you know, I, I think this is important stuff for us to do. Because nobody thinks they have a problem with greed. And that's a sure sign you have a huge problem with greed. The Bible warns of the deceitfulness of riches. In other words, the power of greed is the way it hides itself from its victims, unlike the other sins, which is why Jesus begins the teaching here. If you look in verse 15, when he says, take care and be on your guard, be on your guard, right? You have to be really diligent about this because it's different than the other sins. If you commit adultery, you know you're doing it. You don't wake up in the morning after, uh, after adultery and say, oh, well, who are you? You're not my wife. How'd this happen? You know, if, you, if you're committing adultery, you know you're doing it. It doesn't just happen, but greed is different. Greed blinds you to itself. It blinds you to itself. And I got to be honest with you, I've been doing this for 15 years now. 15 years. And not once in 15 years has someone asked to meet with me and come into my office to confess the sin of greed. Not once. Not once have I had someone come to me and say, you know, I have a real, I have a real problem with this. And one of the things that you need to know is a symptom of sin is saying it's not a problem for me. Where you feel that way in your life, that typically means there's a problem. And so just be aware of those things. Now, a caution before we get into the meat of what I want to say this morning. And the caution in approaching this text is just this, that Scripture locates the problem of greed 
in the inordinate affections and desires of our hearts, not in money and material possessions themselves. That means this. It means that you can have, um, you can have a problem with greed even if you don't have a lot of money. It also, in fact, what occasions this teaching? It's, it's not occasioned by rich people. It's occasioned by a poor person who wants wealth. And so, and so you can have a problem with greed even if you don't have a lot of money, but you can also have a lot of money and not have a problem with greed. And so here's the thing. This is not a sermon about how much square footage house is okay and what is sinful. We're going after the heart because that's where the problem is. And when you start talking about greed and money, the temptation is to do this, is to look around. Man, I'm glad they're here. They need to hear this sermon this morning. Or, oh man, I can't believe they're not here. I gotta make sure they listen to it on the, on the app later this week. <laughs> we wanna look around. And that's part of the problem is, is the reason nobody thinks they have a problem with, with money and material things is you can always look around and find somebody who's got more than you do. It's probably a problem for them, but it's, I mean, I have less than them, so it can't be a problem for me. And so we have, to, we have to resist the temptation to look around, to find somebody who has more or who has less, and to start to make a comparison. I want you to spend your time this morning looking in. Don't look around, look in. Look at your heart, and then hopefully look up. Look up to Jesus in faith and repentance, because that's the direction ultimately that the text is pointing us. And so we're going to follow the same outline that we've been doing throughout the course of this study. You'll see it there for you in the, in the insert in your worship folder. We're first going to define uh, what, what greed is, what we mean by it, and why it's so deadly. Secondly, we want to get underneath it a little bit and say, okay, but if, if that's true, then where does it come from? What's the source? What's the heart engine that really, that really drives greed in my life? Thirdly, once we diagnose the problem, then what's the solution? How does the gospel address the core unbelief that's behind greed? And how does the gospel ultimately beat greed in my life? And as the gospel begins to do that, what's the change? How, how does my life, how will my life look different if the gospel really begins to take root in me? And that's, that's what we want to do, okay? Those four steps, the definition, the source, the solution, and the change. So let's walk together through this text, uh, beginning with just the definition of greed. And the, the passage really defines greed through a story, through a, a famous parable of a man that is called the rich fool. And so we will define greed the same way too. It, it is occasioned, you'll see there, by a dispute between two brothers over an inheritance. It's supremely practical. And it becomes a teaching moment for Jesus who in verse 15 says, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And that word covetousness there is the word for greed in the Bible. And so we see... A definition, it's a desire for more and more for me without limit. A desire for more and more for me, not you, without any limitations. That's my definition anyway. Greed is doing exactly what Jesus warns against here. It's living as if life consists in the abundance of money and possessions. Life there meaning, uh, it being the Greek word zoe, which means your joy, your peace, your meaning, your energy for, for going out into your day, all of it comes from how much money you have in the bank or how many things you have to play with. See, greed is an excessive desire and attachment to material things because they make you feel powerful, safe, and secure. This is Jesus' teaching. And as he often does, he gets the point across through a story. Look there about a landowner who experiences a bumper crop. And so the question comes to us, what do you do when you find that you have more than you need? 
Greed's answer is very simple. Greed says you build bigger barns. That's what this man does. Now, for us, what's the equivalent of these bigger barns? And that's one of the questions that you have to answer uh, when you come to the text, isn't it? It's a good question. But notice the text doesn't give an answer to the question, and I won't either. Jesus does something very different here. He tells us a story to diagnose our greed. He gives us a story, not a list, not a set of rules. Think about that. Why does he do that? Why a story instead of, instead of a list? Why not just condemn this man for his bigger barns? He doesn't condemn him for his bigger barns. He condemns him for, what, for what's going on in his heart. So we get a story, not a rule, not a list, because he knows we like rules. Rules are easy. Rules are black and white. They lay something down and you can do, you know, you can energetically pursue that. The problem is, is as soon as you have a rule, you know, this much square footage is too much. Well, I'm going to make sure I stay underneath that and I'm paying all attention to all of that. And then, and then the sin creeps in the back door while I'm not even paying attention. But a story's different. A story requires imagination. It sinks deeper into the heart. It has a broader application that keeps you on your toes. And that's why, that's why Jesus, that's why Jesus does it this way, because that's where the problem is. Greed is a matter of the heart. The problem in the story was not this man's bigger barns. It was that something had gone wrong in his heart. And you see, greed is wanting all for yourself more than you need. You could define it that way too. That's this man's problem. He wants all for himself more than he needs. But it presents a problem for us that we have to deal with because Will Willimon has said it this way. He says the line between want and need or between desire and necessity. The, want, the line between want and need, desire and necessity is thin. Desire, in other words, has a way of mimicking need. I mean, the advertising industry, uh, you know, has perfected this sleight of hand. It exists to turn desires into needs so that we buy things we think we need that we don't actually need, we just want. Compelling greed. So how do you know when business success turns into greed? When does the need for more, whatever that more might be, more cabinet space in the kitchen, more backyard for the kids, more money in the 401k, more opportunity at work. How do you know when that desire for more becomes too much and becomes an issue of greed? When does a good life of enjoying God's good gifts, which by the way is pleasing in God's sight, you with me? It is. Become something that's off the rails and has become sinful. As terribly unsatisfying as it is, I have to say, I'm not sure I have an answer. Except, perhaps to say what I think the text says. And the teaching of the text really is that the way you guard your heart against these things is you look closely in your life and you know something is really off kilter when a gift of God becomes mine. When something that is, by definition, a gift, you begin to take possession of it in your heart. Look at how the man in the story refers to his bumper crop. Verse 17. What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store, finish it, my crop. Did he make those things grow? I mean, he watered and he fertilized and he did the things, but, but he, didn't, he didn't really do the work. Now, watch how many times first-person possessive pronouns occur in the rest of his speech. You ready? Follow this. Watch how often the words I or my or mine show up. What shall I do? 
for I have nowhere to store my crops, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all of my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, something's really off with this guy. My crops, my barns, my grains, my goods, and eventually my soul. And when you start to talk like that, you know you have a problem. Greed is a, an, ex, an inordinate and excessive desire to possess, to save the gifts of God, mine. And that's why this, this man is, is in trouble, and God, God responds to him in verse 20. He comes to me and says, you, you fool. And a fool in the Bible is someone who's out of touch with reality, and this man surely is. He lives as if his crops, his barn, his grain, his goods, and even his soul all belong to him. Which simply is not true. The truth is that every breath is on loan from God. And what happens in the story is God comes to call in the debt. Look at verse 20. This night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? You think these things belong to you? You think you belong to you? You belong to me. See, it's foolish. What we're learning here is it's foolish to think about your money and be thoughtless about your soul. As if money matters more. It's foolish to live with only this life in view because it is out of touch with reality. This man was a fool. And his sinful craving for more, what it did in his life is it turned desires. It it turned them into needs. And then ultimately into rights. These are mine, he says. They belong to me, he said, about the gifts of God. I'm entitled to do what I want with what belongs to me, which is true, but what belongs to him? Nothing. It all belongs to the one who made him. And that's where you see, that's where you see his problem. That's where you see his sin, not in his barns. In his heart, he is a picture of greed, and the picture stands on its own. It doesn't need explanation. I mean, too much explaining would actually ruin the the story. It would narrow the application too much. So think imaginatively about this story, Jesus says. Where are you like this man? That's what we should really do. Where, Where am I? Where has my life become, the pursuit of my life become like this man's pursuit? That's the work you have to do. Now, as you do that work, let me help you with a couple of just just warning signs. Uh, If there's something wrong in your car, a lot of times you don't know it, but then a little light pops up on your dashboard and lets you know that something's wrong in the engine. Here are a couple lights that can pop up on the dashboard of your life uh, to let you know that there's something wrong underneath the hood that you might not be aware of. And the first is just this. Let me ask some questions. First, are you tired? Are you worn out? Because what greed does is, it, is it, leads, it leads to you just wearing yourself out for more and more and more and more in a way that's just foolish. Leo Tolstoy told a short story called How Much Land Does a Man Need? It's a story of a man named Pahom who loved land more than anything else in the world and he trusted in it for his salvation. If I had plenty of land, he was overheard saying to a friend, I shouldn't fear the devil himself. Well, He didn't know it, but the devil overheard his boast and arranged a huge land-buying opportunity for him. So Pahom meets the the Bashirs, 
they are a simple people with huge land buying, huge enormous tracts of land that they sell to people. And Pahom is delighted when he discovers that uh, their terms are this. For a flat rate of a thousand rubles, Pahom can keep as much land as he can circle on foot in a single day. Sunrise to sunset. But if he doesn't get back to the starting point, uh, by the time the sun sets, then he, then he loses all of the money. He loses the deposit, the thousand rubles. So Pahom sets off on his day-long loop, marking his progress with a spade as he goes along. And each time he starts to think to himself, you know, this is really enough. I should probably start kind of turning back to make sure I get back before the day's over. Each time he, he starts to think to do that, he sees yet another grassy plain. He sees uh, a, another sparkling stream or a noble stand of trees. And he, he thinks, I've just, I've got to have that. I've got to have that. Just a little bit more, just a little bit more. And so the loop keeps extending. And Pahom is so drunk with his ambition that he doesn't realize that he's a long way away from the starting place and the sun is beginning to set and then he begins to panic. And in his panic, he knows he has only one option to dash for the finish line and it's the longest and it's the fastest that he has ever had to sprint in his life but, for, but it's for the love of his life. And at the very end, he makes it. He reaches home base just as the sun disappears over the horizon in the west and the Bashirs all cheer and congratulate him on his splendid achievement but uh, Leo Tolstoy says but he cannot hear them because he's dropped dead of a heart attack now I told you the story's entitled how much man does a land need does, how much land does a man need and the ending answers the question in the words of his servant Tolstoy says this it says his servant picked up the spade that he had been marking his territory with and he dug a grave with it long enough for Pahom to lie in and he buried him in it it turns out six feet from his head to his heels was all he needed are you tired could be because the desire for more and more is taken taken foot in your life but secondly let me ask one more question so you can just diagnose some of this are you living in community with regards to your money are you living in community when it comes to your financial decisions? Now, this is radical. We don't do this. This is scary, but don't tune me out. Hear me. The text describes this rich fool as talking to himself. Do you notice that there? He says to himself, self. You know, he, he turns inward and begins to have a conversation with himself. And everybody, all the commentators see this and they say, this is really out of place. Because what would happen in the culture of the day is that the leading men, this man was obviously a very rich man. He would have been a leading man in the community. And um, culturally, very unlike us, we, we would never, this is frightening, scary no way would we ever do something like this. But in that day, what they would have done is the men would have gathered at the gates of the city every day to just spend all day talking with one another. And they would talk about business decisions they had, and they would counsel with one another. And there would be these, most of these decisions like this. If there was a man that had a bumper crop, he would go to his friends and he would say, you know, what do you think I should do? I mean, what would be the right thing for me to do here? Do you think I ought to do this? And they would haggle it out, and, and he would listen to his friends, and then he would, he would go and he would... And he would do what his friends had counseled him to do, but there's none of that here. He's completely turned in on himself. He's completely forsaken community, which is dangerous to, to do any of the time, but terribly dangerous to do when it comes to matters of finance because of the deceitfulness of riches. So let me ask, do you let your friends into your decisions about money? Holy cow, what? But that's what the text is teaching. 
And so this is greed. Greed is greed is wanting more and more, wanting more for yourself than you need. It's an inordinate and excessive desire to possess. So secondly, let's keep going. Let's keep moving towards towards um you know, in the middle of the sermon. Secondly, where 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 does this come from? What is the sin underneath the sin of greed? What is the heart engine behind greed? And we're told very clearly in Colossians chapter 3 verse 5 that greed is idolatry. And idolatry refers to good things that become ultimate things. So we were, one of the things we have to wrestle with is we were made by God to have and possess all the good things of creation. You with me? We, let me say it again, because this has got to get come across. We were made by God to have and to possess all of the good things of creation. So a healthy desire to acquire is healthy. Idolatry, however, is an over-desire. It's an excessive desire for money or material things, or it's a desire for an excessive amount of money and material things. Peter Kreeft put it this way. He said, it is natural to men to desire external things as means, but greed turns them into ends, into gods. And when a creature is made into a god, it becomes a devil. So the connection between the story of the rich fool and the teaching that follows teaches us an important lesson. You see, so Jesus places, or Luke rather, places Jesus' teaching in a particular order here in Luke chapter 12. He tells us the story of this rich young man, uh, this rich fool, and then, and then immediately after it comes the teaching from Matthew chapter 6 and other places in the Gospels about living with an anxious heart. And he's, Luke is doing theology for us here. He's showing us what's wrong with this man. He's, he's holding up for us a mirror to show in our own lives why it is that we struggle with greed so much. And it's because, it's because we're afraid. Here's the insight into this man's heart. Look at verse 19. I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods now laid up for many years. This is his goal. This is what he wants. This is what's driving his decisions. I, I, I have many goods laid up for many years, so there's nothing to worry about now. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. You're safe. Everything's going to be okay. Nothing can touch you. The retirement years are going to be great, which show us that he's anxious. He's worried about the future. And his bigger barns are a strategy for dealing with his anxiety. If he could have just this much, then he'd be completely safe. He'd have nothing to worry about. Then he could finally, then he could finally sit down. Right? Any of you struggle with that? Do any of you struggle with everything's got to be exactly in place? Everything's got to be, you got to know everything's going to be all right, and then you can sit down. And that's this guy. Okay, now I can sit down, I can relax, I can take a break. I can breathe deep, it's going to be okay. And then Jesus transitions immediately out of the parable to the explanation when he says in verse 22, therefore I tell you, don't be like this man. Don't be anxious about your life. So what's the parable about? Well, it's not about bigger barns. It's about having an anxious heart because that's the real problem. The rich fool built his bigger barns because he had an anxious heart. And you and I, we fret about and store up as many treasures on earth as we can because we're afraid and it makes us feel safe. Proverb, uh, Proverbs ten fifteen says, the wealth of the rich is their fortified city. Think about that image for just a minute. A city with high walls and strong gates and armed guards, a place that you can go and you can feel safe. Wealth can make you feel safe, but if you use it like that, it will destroy you. If you turn it into a God, if you ask of money and wealth what only God can provide for you, it will become a devil. And in our anxiety about life, we turn away from him 
And we look to material things to save. If only I had this much in the bank, then everything would be okay. If I could just get this much more, you know, a couple more bedrooms, then life would work the way I want it to. If I could just get that organizational closet, you know, then, man, then everything would be great. If I could just get my kid into this school to have these prospects. See, it's hard to have money and not trust it to save. It's hard to be rich and not set your hope on riches. It's hard to have an abundance of things and not look to them for life, for comfort, for security, for safety, for purpose. But the issue is not money. The issue is your fear. Where do you go with your fear? Where do you go with your anxious heart? What makes you feel safe? Is it your job security? Is it your 401k balance? Is it your, your retirement plan? Or do you sing with the psalmist, you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety? See, greed is unbelief. I can't trust God to provide for me, so I have to store up things. Greed is over-providing for yourself. Anybody do that? I do. Over-providing for yourself with money and material possessions because you don't feel safe in God's hands. So the heart engine behind greed is unbelief and fear. Fear that I will not have enough for tomorrow. Fear that God will stop providing for me. Fear that he really isn't a good, good father. So how do we live not afraid? That's the question the text is driving us to. And that's really what the whole middle section of Luke chapter 12, the part that I didn't print for you, is all about. You're probably familiar with it, most of you. Jesus tells his disciples not to worry, but to look at the birds. Remember this? Look at the birds. How, they, how, how, how God feeds them. And, you know, look at the flowers of the field, how, how God clothes them. And if God feeds birds and they don't have to have storehouses or barns to store up their, their food in, and if, and if God clothes the flowers and they don't have to fret about and toil and spin, Jesus says, don't you know that he'll take care of you too because you're far more valuable to him than birds, flowers. He's your father. You have a father in heaven. Unlike many of our earthly fathers, a good father in heaven who longs to fill your life with good things, who longs to bless you and to take care of you and meet your every need. The text says it's his, it's his desire, his heartbeat to give you the kingdom. It's your father's pleasure to give you the kingdom, Jesus says. Oh, you of little faith, verse 28. See that? Oh, you of little faith. See, if you have an anxious heart, it's because you have a little faith. You have a faith problem. And so the solution to fear, listen, this is what we have to get. The solution to fear is never more. It's never, well, let me, let me qualify that. It's never more money. It's never more control. It's never more security. Do you believe me? Can you look at me and like, do you believe me when I say that? I know you don't. You don't. You're lying. If you're not in your head, you're lying. Nobody believes that. The solution, the solution to an anxious heart is never more money, more control, more security. The solution is always more faith. Now, what do I mean by that? Augustine famously said that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in, in God. And so it would be wrong 
It would be wrong to think that the trick is to extinguish the deep desires of our hearts, to snuff them out. That's Buddhism, not Christianity. The problem is that we uh, desire, is not that we desire too much, it's that we desire too little, and we desire the wrong things. But Christianity says that the way to fight uh, raging desire in your heart is not to extinguish it, but to inflame it and to direct it to its proper object. Another way to say that is, if greed is idolatry, then the cure is what? It's worship. Cures worship. And that's what the Bible means by faith. Faith is knowing your heart's true object of desire. It's knowing. Faith, living in faith is knowing that bigger barns will not make you any less afraid. Only being assured that you have a Father in heaven who loves you and is committed to, to providing for you and experiencing his presence and love throughout your life can make you unafraid. Faith, faith is knowing that you'll remain restless and always after more and more and more until, until the time in your life when your heart makes its home in his love. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, if you've gone your whole life from one thing to the next and you have more, most people in our country, they have more today than they did last year, And if that's you, and yet you're anxious and you're unhappy, and maybe even more so than you were at the start, let me suggest something to you. Could it be that it is because you were made for a happiness that nothing in this world can truly give? There's a word, an important word that Jesus used to describe this here in our passage. It's in verse 32. So look down there with me. Verse 32, fear not, little flock. Fear not, little flock. See, Jesus has given us the solution here. How do you deal with your fear? How do you overcome it? How does the gospel beat it? Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He says you're seeking after things that will never make you feel unafraid. That's the problem. Do you know that? You're you're filling your life with things because you're afraid, but they're things that will never make you unafraid. Stop seeking for things that can't possibly fill up the empty parts of your life, Jesus says. Instead, verse 33, seek the kingdom of God and everything else will be added to you. Seek the kingdom, Jesus says, and you'll find joy, contentment, peace, security, purpose, all of those things you've been looking for in every other adventure. So what is the kingdom? Well, the kingdom refers to the eruption of God's power and presence into the world in Jesus Christ. In Jesus, God is with you, we read a little while ago. The kingdom signals the coming of the king to dwell with his people. In Jesus Christ, God has dealt with your sins to reconcile you to himself. And in Jesus Christ, he has made possible a new and supernatural way of living because Jesus not only died for our sins, but he was raised from the dead on the third day that we might walk in newness of life. And in Jesus Christ, the promise now hangs over your life because of all that he's done on your behalf that God will never leave you or forsake you. God will never leave you or forsake you. You hear me? God will never leave you or forsake you. God will never leave you or forsake you. If I said that about 175 more times, you still wouldn't believe it. And neither would I, which is why the scripture says it over and over again. God will never leave you or forsake you. And according to Hebrews, that's the key to keeping your life free from the love of money. You have to believe him when he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. The song of your life has to become there in Hebrews 13. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And when that happens... There's change. And that's the last thing. Let's just finish up here. The last thing that I want to talk about, and the change can be summed up in Jesus' words there in verse 31, to seek 
the kingdom. Seek the kingdom. To have faith is to seek the kingdom. Those two things are synonymous here. They're synonyms in Luke chapter 12. Now, to the Christian, let me just say this. Uh, If you're here and you're a believer, your faith is in the Lord Jesus. To believe something is to live as, as if it's true. This rich fool believed there was an inverse correlation between wealth and anxiety. Do you know what I mean by that? He believed in his heart that more, more stuff, more money would mean less anxiety. Bigger barns, less anxiety. A bigger house, less anxiety. A bigger 401k, less anxiety. More money, more, more stuff, less anxiety. Can I just say to you, I'm not, I'm, I have some experience, not a ton, but that's just not true. The Bible says it's not true, and I can tell you it's not true because the wealthiest people that I know a lot of them are the most anxious people I know. Wealth and Xanax seem to go together a bunch. I'm serious. Because the more stuff you have, the more you got to keep up with, the more you got to run around in your life. And, it, and, and it, I just, just my experience is that. And so it's just not true. Uh, it's much like the scene in the Harry Potter movie, the last Harry Potter movie, in the vault of Beatrix Lestrange, vast hoard of treasure. Uh, is there, uh, but, but the treasure is cursed, and so everything they touch multiplies, if you remember the scene, uh, so they touch a little, you know, pot, and it multiplies until they're literally drowning in gold. More money doesn't mean less stress. I mean, in other words, there's, actually, there's, all, there's, there's often a direct correlation between wealth and anxiety. So the solution to feeling worried and overwhelmed is never more. Do you hear me? The solution to feeling worried and overwhelmed is never more. Unless it's more faith. The only more that can make you feel less stressed is more of God. And the only way to get more of God is to have less of everything else. So my question for those of you who call yourselves a Christian is, are you living as if that were true? That's what it means to seek first the kingdom of God. You can boil down the sin of greed. We need to finish into two parts. The one is an overwhelming desire to get more and more of what you don't have. And secondly, an overwhelming desire to keep for yourself what you do have. And therefore, the first part of repentance is what you see in both Timothy and in in Hebrews uh, in the call to contentment. So you read in uh, Timothy, uh, godliness with contentment is great gain. If we have food and clothing, uh, with these we will be content Hebrews 13, 5, keep yourself free from the love of money and be content with what you have. So contentment's the opposite of greed. It means the fever of greed. When you find contentment, it means the fever of greed is breaking and health is coming back into your soul. Contentment is, is not needing more and more. It's being able to look at your life and you're say, you say, I have everything I need. So contentment really is this supernatural ability to be able to distinguish between needs and wants. Greed conflates the two. Contentment says there's a difference. I may not have all I want, but I do have all I need, and that's all I need. That's contentment. And so the first part of seeking God's kingdom is to be content with God meeting your needs and not demanding that he also grant you your wants. If we have food and clothing, Paul says, with these we will be content, focusing on the needs that are met and not the wants that are unmet. The one leads to contentment, the other leads to ingratitude and anxiety and depression. Focusing on the needs that are met, have been met by God's great generosity, not the wants that have not been met because you're asking him for a a, a serpent when you think you're asking him for a piece of bread and he won't give you a serpent. Stripping your life of excess and flabbiness 
I'd say it to you this way. Contentment makes you a lean, mean fighting machine for the kingdom. But the change that Jesus calls us to is not, it goes far beyond just contentment. The opposite of greed is found in the beatitude of Jesus. Blessed are the merciful. We've been looking at these beatitudes. For they shall receive mercy. So the second part of greed, remember, is an overwhelming desire to keep for yourself what you do have. And therefore, the opposite of greed has to go beyond just contentment. It also has to go into the discipline of mercy, which means to be moved to generosity and sacrifice by the needs of others. And that's how Jesus' teaching ends here. He applies the teaching to seeking first the kingdom, verse 33, by selling, by saying, sell your possessions and give to the needy and provide for yourselves money bags that do not grow old with treasure in heaven that does not fail. That's how you fight greed. I mean, he gives the exact same instructions to the rich young ruler and also to Timothy. Be generous and ready to share. Be rich towards God because you can't be rich towards God and also be rich in the things of this world. The two don't go together. So the increases God gives you, he means for others. And I'm just undone by that because it's not the way I live my life. But if you want an example, just think about breath. Think about the very act of breathing. We go minute by minute, moment by moment through our life breathing. And what is breathing? It's receiving and giving away. That is the basic motion of all of life. We, an in and out exchange that animates plant and animal life. We breathe in oxygen and we exhale carbon dioxide. What happens if we don't breathe in? We die. But what happens if you breathe in and you hold your breath like a petulant child? who doesn't want to share, that's fatal too. Those who fill their lungs without releasing the air perish in the same way as those whose lungs are empty. The same is true of God's mercy. Receiving and giving away and receiving again is the eternal kind of life. It is what Jesus, It is what Paul talks about with Timothy, life that is truly life. Paul says, take hold of that which is truly life. The lie of greed is that happiness can only come from possessing, from having things but we have it from Jesus' lips. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. A life of consumption and hoarding is not truly life. Truly life is to be rich towards God. Truly life is to be rich in good works. A life of generosity and sacrifice for the needs of others. Looking for happiness through the accumulation of stuff, through, through, um, through the accumulation of vacations and Facebook-worthy experiences. It's like trying to fill the Grand Canyon with marbles. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. And this is also vanity, Ecclesiastes 5 says. But there is truly life flowing from the Father, breathed out by the Holy Spirit for us to take hold of. If we will heed Jesus' words, and move towards him in faith and repentance this morning. Truly life. Take hold of that which is truly life. And that's what's before us this morning. So let's pray that we would do just that, can we? So Father, in these last moments of our service, we do pray that you lead us in faith and repentance to do just that, to take hold in these moments as we come to this table, here at this table, we, we are shown the way of the kingdom. Here at this table, in your body broken and your blood shed for us, uh, we, we see your great heart for us, that it is your desire and your pleasure to give us the kingdom, and that is the truth that can break the chains of greed in our life. So come, come and do just that, that we might forsake our foolish ways of living 
and take hold of that which is truly life because there our happiness is found and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. And so because his hands are open to us, then the only way to go about living in his kingdom is to, if you come to him like this, right, holding on to things, he can't fill your hands with the good things that he longs to give to you. The only way to come to him is with hands open because you believe that his hands are open to you to bless you. And that's the promise of this benediction, which is why we, we reach out in these moments with, with open, empty hands to say, God, fill me. I need you. I need what only you can give. And that is the very promise of these words. So, so receive, reach out with empty hands and receive the promise of the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you, give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.